You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone beside you the title of the sermon this morning, Knowing God Deeply. The Apostle Paul begins the book of Ephesians with one of the most well-known portions of the scripture that communicates the plan of God and how each person of the triune God is involved. The Father planned from eternity past a people to be saved by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and then sealed them with His Spirit to the praise of His glorious grace in redemption. And following that, Paul talks about the faith of the Ephesus church in Jesus and their love towards everyone and how that moves him to pray for them, praying that they would have wisdom and knowledge about God, having their hearts enlightened, not just factual-based knowledge, but knowledge that will ground them in the truth of God and then experience life through that perspective. The Holy Spirit's desire is no different for us today, church. He wants us to know God deeply. I think it is fair to say that if we come to church, read the Bible and pray and do all that we ought to do, but with no God-centered intentionality of growing in maturity, but just a checkmark in your Christian walk, we won't weather the storms that are ahead of us. And we will miss out on who God is on this side of eternity. We won't set our eyes on Jesus, but focus on all the little affairs that happens in our life. We won't have a right understanding of how God views us in Christ and what we receive from God, leaving us exposed to having a wrong view of ourselves. And we won't recognize the power of God toward us and fail in our fight against trials and temptations by using our own strength, struggling with the same kinds of sin. We will never know when the enemy will attack us or when the Lord will lead us into a valley. We will be caught by surprise when that season of sickness, poverty, or death will find us and we are unprepared. That's why while we're at the mountaintop, or when life is not as bad as it could be, when things are okay, we should use that time to get to know God deeply. And not just when we are in need or in times of trouble. To know God deeply will be our focus this morning. So the Apostle Paul mentions three ways in how to know God deeply in verses 18 and 19 of the main passage. And we are going to walk through them. So let's start with verse 16, working our way through verse 18, part A. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. 
The Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesus church, and by extension, because of Scripture's timeless characteristic, the Holy Spirit instructs us today, church, to know the hope of God's calling. Know the hope of God's calling. When we mention hope in our conversations, we usually mean to express a feeling of something we want to happen in the future, but we don't have certainty that it will indeed happen. For example, I hope I land that job I interviewed for. I hope I find a spouse that I can love and cherish. I hope the housing market will not will be more affordable. The hope being talked about by Paul here is a hope about a calling that has been given to us, a heavenly calling, a calling from above, a calling from God. And because it is a calling from God, the hope of this calling aims to provide us a certainty for the future. And it has certainty because it comes from God, who will accomplish what he desires and promises. In Reformed tradition, there are two kinds of calling we would identify within Scripture. One is the general kind of calling of the gospel call to repentance and faith in Christ. This call is what we, the church, are responsible for. We are instructed by God in Matthew chapter 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. And we do that how? By preaching and sharing the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. We are called to make a plea to the public, the pagan world, the unsaved, the lost, to turn from their sins and then turn to faith in Christ. This is a general call that we ought to make to unbelievers. The calling in our main passage here is what would be described as the effectual calling of God, where the recipient of such a call will indeed come to faith and remain secure in Him. And this effectual calling is the work of the Spirit, not us. So, there is the general call by us, and then there is the effectual call by the Holy Spirit. And most of the time, if not always, the Holy Spirit will use our general call to effectually call someone to faith and repentance. That's why in Reformed thinking, when we ask the question, why does one person say yes and another person say no to the gospel call, when they have the exact same background and the exact same presentation of the gospel? The answer we give is one received the effectual calling from the Holy Spirit in that gospel call message, and the other didn't in that moment in history. Now, before someone shouts and says, this is unfair and this is not right by God, the Bible makes it very clear that it is totally the prerogative of the triune God to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Romans 9, 15. Everyone will get what they deserve, justice. And those who receive the effectual calling are receiving what they don't deserve, grace. And the justice of these individuals who are now saints or believers will have been accounted for 
by Jesus at the cross. A beautiful portion that can help illustrate this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. This is what Paul says here. But we preach Christ crucified. So this is the general call. And it is a stumbling block to the Jews and in folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, this is different, both Jews and Greeks, what is it? Christ is what? The power of God, the wisdom of God. This effectual calling is what our hope is about. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are what? Called according to His purpose. And what is this purpose? We know the purpose when we read verse 6 of our main passage in Ephesians chapter 1. It is the praise of His glorious grace. So Romans 8.29 now says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the golden chain of redemption that is cherished in Reformed theology. If you are effectually called by God, you will be justified, sanctified, and then one day, Glorified. Dear ones, what is holding you back from having a joyful view of the future? Is it your mortgage payments? The rising costs to live here? Or is it your past hurts with people not meeting your expectations? Is it the uncertainties of life that forces you to expect the worst? Are you a pessimist when you talk? Do you behave like your life has no meaning? Church, know deeply the hope of the effectual call of God that results in your salvation. Your end is not suffering. Your life is not meaningless. Your future is bright. Your purpose is God's glory. Your calling is certain. You will be with God in eternity future with all the other saints before you and after you, completely free from the power of sin, free to love God and your Christian family with a heart filled with joy and gratitude to the Savior of your soul, Jesus Christ, whom at that day you will be enthralled by by His holiness. That is the hope of God's calling for you. That's what Paul is praying for you, the church. And this objective 
hope and certainty of God's calling ought to stir in you today your personal hope in God for your future. Every other hope that originates with us has the potential to catastrophically fail. But this is the only hope any one of us will ever have that has a 100% certainty of success. Why? Because it is from God who never fails to keep his promise. Now, to my friend who does not trust in Christ for salvation, what is your hope for tomorrow? How confident are you about the outcome of your life? Do you realize that you, your life is not a cosmic accident? Are you able to self-evaluate and see that your life is not meant to be wasted and on personal ambitions and a hedonistic lifestyle? Because if you continue down this path, it will end in your destruction, where you will feel the flame of God's holy wrath against your self-absorbed life. You are not that great. You are nothing in front of a holy God who hung the stars, painted the sky, and brought life to being. Your good and charitable efforts in life won't move you an inch away from God's judgment because He expects you to be perfect and holy just as He is. That's His standard of good. But you must realize, just like we do, you can't do that. None of us can. Also, God realizes that none of us can. That's why God sends His only Son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that you ought to live and then die in your place to pay the dues that you owe because of your imperfect life. So that if you believe in that person, Jesus, God who became man and what he did, you will have this hope of his calling that goes beyond the grave of your mortal body. So I urge you to consider your sinful predicament and submit to the lordship of Jesus who can transform your life, transform your mind from dead works to serve the living God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, set your eyes on the hope of God's calling for you. You know the power of the Holy Spirit. You have experienced his power. The only reason you wake up every day as a Christian is because the Holy Spirit called you to godly repentance and faith in Christ every single morning. Don't spend your evenings in bed worrying about yesterday's baggage, today's problems, and tomorrow's uncertainties. Why? Because you already have a hope that is certain. You know the hope of God's calling. Coming back to our passage now, we can see that Paul also prays for the church to know the riches of God's inheritance. To know the riches of God's inheritance. I must admit that this was and is still one of the harder truths for me to properly comprehend from my study. In fact, we have so many theologians and pastors, biblical theologians, who lean in one way or the other. 
The Apostle Peter was not lying when he said that the things Paul wrote were difficult. In our main passage, Paul says that he prays for the Ephesus church to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, which could either mean that it is us saints who inherit the blessings that come from God, just like we read in the previous prayer point by Paul for us to know the calling that comes from God, or it could mean that it is God who inherits us now, since we belong to the plan of God, which is purpose to bring God glory, as mentioned a few times earlier in the same chapter. And by the way, both are true because we have respective verses for each of these views elsewhere in Scripture. The question here is, which of these views rightly belong in this verse? The first interpretation relies on the assumption that the inheritance mentioned in verses 3, 11, and 14 of the same chapter is the same inheritance mentioned in Paul's prayer in verse 18. And that Paul has us as the recipients who receive God's calling, and in this case, God's inheritance. You, we'll see this similarly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul speaks in a similar, similar manner by telling the church to give thanks to God who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about us being born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for us in heaven. So anytime inheritance was mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, it meant an inheritance for us and not God. We will look a little further into this inheritance at a later moment, but the second interpretation, which I kind of lean towards, is that God himself has an inheritance. And this inheritance is you and me, the church of Jesus Christ. The assumption for this interpretation is that Paul is thinking about the Old Testament, where God saw Israel as his own portion, his possession, his inheritance. Paul, in this view, is praying for us to know our value and worth in Christ. Further, those in favor of this view suggest that Paul is not merely stating the same prayer point in a different way from the first prayer point, but is rather advancing his prayer with three different but tightly related points about the knowledge of God. So Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 9 says it like this, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 25 says, The Lord of heaven's armies will pronounce a blessing over the earth, saying, Blessed be my people Egypt and the work of my hands Assyria, and my special possession Israel. So if you survey the Old Testament, you can find verses like these where God speaks so passionately about Israel as his own possession, his own people. And assuming Paul had this in mind, Paul would be now looking at the church as God's possession. The Gentiles who were previously cut off from Israel, the nation of God, have now been grafted into the family of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so the true and spiritual Israel is now what? The church 
that includes both Jews and Gentiles. Previously, Israel was the inheritance of God, the possession of God. And now, the church is the inheritance of God, the possession of God. In verses 3 through 14, in our main passage, right before this prayer, Paul lays out this plan by God from eternity past and how it will be completely realized in eternity future. And the finality of this plan is for God to be glorified in the redemption of a specific people, those who are in Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming Messiah, and we, the church, look back at the revealed Messiah, Jesus. So both groups had different levels of revelation about the Messiah, but the method of salvation was the same. By grace, through faith in the promised Messiah for the Old Testament saints, by grace, through faith in the revealed Messiah, Jesus Christ. Both groups of saints are now in Christ and thus able to enjoy every spiritual blessing mentioned in chapter 1. All the saints inherit the spiritual blessings from God, and God will have for himself his own people, his inheritance in the saints. God sees us as his inheritance because we are on the trajectory of becoming like who? His son Jesus. When we are fully saved, and I mean when we are glorified, we will be glorious because we will be like Jesus Christ. And that is the inheritance God looks forward to, where He can freely dwell with us and be united with His people, where there is no sin to cause a divide between us and God, like today, through our flesh. Now, bear with me here. God treasures His Son, Jesus, and His Son brings Him glory. And since God treasures His Son, Jesus, who brings Him glory, He will likewise treasure in all those who look like who? Jesus. Who are clothed in Jesus. Who are covered in Jesus. Because those who are in Christ are what? What are they predestined to bring? God glory. You see what's happening here. Why God glorifies in His people. It is not because of our merit. It is all because of His eternal plan in Christ. All the godly things we do in life, we know, is empowered and enabled by the Spirit of Christ. Today, we labor as Christians in this life to do what is holy and blameless before God. But like we just sung, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So when we read verses 3 to 14, in Him, in Him, in Him, that is the qualifier for every spiritual blessing and inheritance we will ever receive from God. In Him is also the qualifier for God to have us as His possession, His inheritance. If we are not in Jesus, we are simply children of wrath, destined to die in our sin and curse God forever in the lake of fire. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that He showed us 
Mercy, mercy that removes us from sinking sand and places us on the rock of salvation where we will become more and more and more like Christ in this life and then one day become just like him. That's the promise. And church, when we finally become glorified and look like Jesus and bring God glory, it is unimaginable of what that beauty will be like. It is inconceivable of what our inheritance from God will be like. If we take this prayer point by Paul to mean that we inherit the blessings that come from God, this is what Paul would have us be reminded of. And the Apostle John gives a glimpse of our bright inheritance from God in Revelation 21 where we see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man, with us. God will dwell with you and me with no inch of separation. And we will be his people. He will wipe every tear and death will be no more. And this city, this new Jerusalem, which represents the bride, the wife of the lamb, is our inheritance from God. The city described had the glory of God, the radiance of rare jewels, walls adorned with all kinds of stones, city that was pure gold, a city with no temple since God is there himself, and a city with no sun because God's glory was there to be the very light within the city walls. This is a picture of what our life will be like in the future. A city, a life with each other and God where there is no separation between us and God. On that day, two things will happen. We will have gained the completion of our salvation and God will have gained a people for himself. But I must stress this. We have an eternal inheritance from God because God chose us to be his inheritance first. We know God personally today because God foreknew us before we were born. We love God today because God loved us while we were still sinners. This is the biblical pattern. We are who we are because of the grace of God that came to us first. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that you are a chosen race, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all the things that come under spiritual blessings. And it also says, and he also says, and we are a people for God's possession. My 
Dear brothers and sisters, do you know that in Christ you are the inheritance of God, the possession of God, the people of God? Do you understand that the God of the universe, who is self-sufficient and ever-gloriously perfect, plan to make you perfect and cover you with his glory so that one day he can be with you because he finds you to be his treasure. He finds you worthy of his inheritance. Not worthy because of your works, but of the work of his son Jesus, in whom you are covered, in whom you now identify with. Ask yourself, this is application now, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Are you unsure about your value, about your worth in Christ? Do you think that God looks at you with baggage because of your past? Do you wonder on whether if God made a mistake with you? Do you believe the voice in your head that says, God doesn't really care about you, so you should do what you want to do? If we don't pursue to know God deeply, we won't have the knowledge ready to work with and counter such self-deprecating evil thoughts that enter our mind. If you recognize that you are God's treasured possession and that you have spiritual blessings ahead of you, who, and who this person is, this Jesus who did everything to save you, then you will think twice about what festers in your mind about yourself. You will really fight. If you take pride in yourself, this truth will humble you. It will humble you by reminding you that you are God's treasure only because he showed you mercy. If he didn't, you would have died in your sins and have remained alienated from the life of God. On the flip side, if you think so low of yourself, this truth will lift your spirit up by reminding you that God chose you, sent his son to die for you, and then sent his spirit of promise to seal you for the day of redemption, where you will be glorified and gain your inheritance, like John says in Revelation 21. Because God loves you and wants you for his possession. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loves you. Some argue against Reformed thinking about predestination by saying it is all arbitrary. No, 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 it's not. It says in verse 4 and 5 that in love, in love, God predestines us in Christ so that we can enjoy him forever. You need to believe this. He loves you. And you need to know God deeply to understand what that means. 
And in this verse, in this prayer of Paul for the church, to be loved by God means that you are either his treasured possession or that you receive the inheritance from God. You are his. You are his portion. You belong to God. Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 says it like this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, this includes you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What other declaration of love will we ever, ever, ever need to live our life? Seriously. You probably noticed that I went back and forth with the two interpretations. And to be honest, it's not that easy to choose one or the other. So these concepts, at least in my studies, seem to be knit together very close. Or as Pastor John Piper would say, it may be possible that Paul intentionally worded this prayer in the original language ambiguously to make us think on this matter deeply so that we grow in the knowledge of our God from both angles. So that we may know what are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. Now, the next question we can ask is this. Well, how will all this happen? How is all of this going to happen? How is God going to take a wicked sinner who drinks his vomit of sin with pleasure, hurts others without remorse, and blasphemes God with a prideful heart, and then make them a new saint who drinks from the rivers of living water, loves others unconditionally, and glorifies God with a humble heart. How is God going to accomplish that? How will God ensure that this sinner to saint transformation will not fizzle out, but remain till the very end? How will God protect this believer from the enemy? How will God use the saint for his purposes in and through the church? And the answer we see is this. Paul prays that the church ought to know the greatness of God's power. Know the greatness of God's power. Let's read verse 19 of our main passage, which says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That is a descriptive sentence from Paul's prayer about the power of God towards us. When we read the rest of this chapter, we see that this is the same power that worked for Jesus, right? And Paul uses the application of God's power in Jesus' life to help us think about the different ways the greatness of God's power is towards us. So we can read verse 19 and 20 again. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? God's power raised Christ from the dead. 
God's power raised Christ from the dead. When God resurrected Jesus bodily, it was a demonstration of the power of God. Jesus defied the laws of nature. He was physically dead, but God resurrected him with full life. And by doing this, God claimed victory over death itself. And this is the promise that believers now have, that the same way Christ found victory over death, we will have victory over death as well. We have already experienced the resurrection of our inner man when we converted to Christianity by receiving the message of the gospel. Now we await the promise of the resurrection of our outer body. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead will be the same power that will one day glorify us with a new and imperishable and immortal body. And that's why today we can cry out and sing songs that say, Oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Another way this power is used in the life of Christ is verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's power seated Christ in heavenly places at his right hand. God seated Christ with the highest honor, his right hand. And this same power has now seated you and me in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And God raised us up with him. And what? Seated us with him, Jesus in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. This is what's happening right now in application. That means you have been positioned by God in the highest realm possible by His great power. You are in the VIP of VIP section. I don't know how else to put that into words. And since the power of God seated Christ there forever and secure, you are also seated right now in the heavenly realms forever, and your spot is secure. We may not grasp it from our physical limited sense right now, but from a spiritual perspective, your position before God has been secured no matter what you do in life. No matter what you do in life. And no... This is not a license for us to go do whatever our flesh wants to do. But it is a high calling. It is a high calling that you now have as one of the VIPs of all existence. You have a responsibility to behave, to act, to be passionate as his VIP, his ambassador about the things that God is passionate about and wants to accomplish in history. Believers are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The same power that seated Jesus, with the same power that seated Jesus at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Verse 20 and 21, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. 
God's power granted Christ with all authority. God's power granted Christ with all authority. There is no other person, no other man in human history or ever will be who has been elevated by the power of God like the man Jesus. And he is not just any man. He is the God-man, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And this Jesus now rules with authority over every spiritual force, including the evil ones. Those words, rule and authority and power and dominion that Paul uses are terms employed by him to communicate the spiritual evil forces that are at work in the world today and waging war against the church. You know, Christians are getting more and more marginalized, primarily because of our views and social issues. Satan and his host have done a good job of convoluting the language spoken in our culture and created euphemisms to remove the severity of the sinful ideas and practices propagated and celebrated in society. Things have exponentially exploded in an overly progressive way where we can't even talk about things that are common sense because it would be insensitive and bigoted. And many of us here, including myself, have openly shared our frustrations with each other about what's going on in the world and in Canada especially. Something I've personally been convicted about this past week is that Jesus is still king. Jesus is still Lord. He has not left the right hand of God, and he won't until he can rest the sole of his feet on the faces of all his enemies. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. He has already disarmed the evil forces of darkness and publicly shamed them by triumphing over them through his sacrifice on the cross, which also canceled our debt of sin. That's Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. The spirit of Jesus that has been poured into our hearts is greater than the one in the world. And we are overcomers of this wretched world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. And finally, Jesus is building his church and is putting us in the offensive. And the gates of hell that are trying to prevent us from entering with the word of the gospel will not prevail. Matthew 16, verse 18. Believers can be victorious against evil powers because the power of God that elevated Christ with all authority is the same power that is at work in us. And finally, verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's power made Christ the head of the church. God's power made Christ the head of the church. Jesus doesn't just have authority over creation or spiritual beings like Satan and his host, but also the church, including this local church. And by implication, we, by the power of God, have been made to be 
the hands, feet, and mouth of Christ in this world. This is what Paul was praying for us to know, church. His prayer for us was to know how the power of God that has already raised to new life in Christ and then will resurrect us physically one day. His prayer for us is to know the power of God that has given us a new position in Christ in the highest realm with the greatest honor. His prayer is for us to know the power of God that enables us to be victorious in our fight against the evil forces that aim to steal our joy, kill our faith, and destroy our lives. Paul's prayer for us is to know the power of God that has made us to be the very hands, feet, and mouth, the body of Christ that proclaims Jesus in this world. Brothers and sisters, as we come to a close now with Paul's prayer for the church, let's ask ourselves, do we know God deeply? Do we desire to know God deeply? What knowledge of God do we need to grow in maturity and experience that knowledge in our life? What do we need to focus on so that we can be firm in our faith and devotion to God? Is it the knowledge of the hope of God's calling for us? Or is it the knowledge of the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? Or is it the knowledge of the greatness of God's power towards us? May the good Lord grant us the spirit of wisdom and open our mind to be enlightened so that we can know our God deeply. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you helped us to look at what your Apostle Paul prayed for when he thought about the Ephesus church. Lord, we want to know you deeply. God, we are prone to wander from your presence and we get caught up in the affairs of life and all the while fail to realize that you want us to know you more, to know you deeply. Lord, forgive us for not prioritizing you. Forgive us for not meditating enough in your word and praying about it to you. Lord, fill us with your spirit today. Help us to be intentional in our walk with Christ. Help us to look at the scriptures and know you as Paul prayed for the Ephesus church. God, we thank you that you do hear our prayers. We bless your name and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.